It's time for the Tri-State Sports Beat with your hosts, Nick Federico, Scott DeBell, and Joe Bruno. And welcome back, everyone, to the Tri-State Sports Beat. Nick, Scott, and Joe here to recap the 10-episode documentary that we just saw on ESPN for the last five weeks, The Last Dance, profiling the 1998 Chicago Bulls. Uh, Nick, Joe, what'd you guys think of the, uh, documentary overall before we the get the best, episode? the best freaking sports documentary I've watched in my lifetime. I've now yeah, I'm a was, nerd. Really I'm a good. nerd and watch a lot of sports documentaries and I've watched a lot in quarantine, obviously, cause we've been in the house for, uh, up to three months. So I've watched a lot of sports documentaries in my day. Being a Yankee fan, you watch Yankeeographies, you know, that goes without saying. Um, but this is now my favorite sports documentary I've ever watched that doesn't involve the teams that I root for. And it's kind of, you know, it's kind of weird too, because yes, the Bulls did beat up on the Knicks and we will totally get to that, but it's just a great piece of sports film. And I didn't know until further on in this documentary that the same, that this is the same guy that directed the fab five. Mm, so that's one I of think my favorite I, 30 for 30. Yeah, too. exactly. That was one that's going to be, you know, remembered forever. And this one's certainly going to be played for many, many years to come. But th- yeah, I can't say much more than that. It's my, it's now my favorite sports documentary I've ever watched. Yeah. I, I wanted to watch it just because like it was a big thing coming out without sports being on and everything. Mm-hmm. So I, I tuned in the first two episodes and then I found myself watching the next three episodes Got a little off track, but I ended up watching. I told you guys I watched all of them basically, and the last two I just didn't have time to to catch up on, and I still watched the recaps of them. So right. I mean, it, normally things like that don't engage me, but they did a really good job, like engaging you in every single episode, bringing something new, bringing story the the different type of storylines, how they put it all together going back and forth between the uh was it the 98 season and uh and, and the past and yeah it was it was just overall really well put together and i really enjoyed it can we say too that the soundtrack was fire it was a very good yeah, soundtrack. It was. very good soundtrack all right so we will fully recap 
all 10 episodes of this fabulous document. Well, Scott, what did you think about it, first of all, before we start? I mean, I think ESPN literally could not have picked a better time to put it out. I'm glad Absolutely, they yeah. – I mean, it was scheduled to come out this summer, probably after the NBA season, but the fact that there was nothing else on, ESPN literally – it was the most viewed sports documentary, at least the first two episodes were, of all time. Um, I think this one had like 6 million and the next one was the Bo knows 30 for 30. And that one had like Mm -hmm. two and a half million or something like that. Like it blew it out of the water. Like people were talking about it all the time. You know, they literally could not have executed that better. Like luckily it was ready for like ready for this time. Um, I mean, overall, like just based on when we were born, like we were, we were born in 1997 or whatever. We didn't get to witness like what they did. Like, know what the 98 bulls were all about or even just the Mm -hmm. run in general so like this yeah Yeah, we've seen we've seen the stats we've seen all that stuff but like to really they really engaged you in and and brought you into like what everyone else was thinking too what Mm -hmm. fans were thinking what what the officials uh the organizations were thinking like it was just it was absolutely amazing Yeah. (laughs) yeah like i really didn't like know the story all that well just from like you knew what they did and everything but yeah i didn't really know like you know the ins and outs and like you know everything that scotty pippen went through yeah. like we'll get to that but like you know just all like the the inner workings of all that it, like all that happened just like it was awesome to see and get to experience all of that through this documentary mm-hmm. all right so let's get to it boys episode number one the hype is here. We're all excited. We got our adult beverages. We got our nachos. We're ready to go. <laughs> Episode number one starts out very interesting. And I call this the Jerry Krause dilemma. Now, Joe, let me get through the Jerry Krause dilemma, and then you can tell me what you think about it. It starts out with Jerry Krause. You know, the guy put the team together, but he wanted – a lot more credit than he already has gotten to that point. And he was quoted saying that organizations win rings, not the players. Later he would say on that he was misquoted, blah, 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 whatever. But the point was he wanted to tear down. He wanted to tear down the Bulls in the midst of this sixth championship that they would ultimately win in 1998. Along with that, Krause and Phil Jackson had tension because Phil wanted a new contract and he wanted to be paid like one of the top coaches that were winning championships. Now up to this point in 98, Phil and the bulls have already won five championships. So I totally understand why Phil Jackson wanted to be paid like a top head coach. He deserves it. And then Jerry Krause comes out and says, I don't care if you go 82 and Oh, this is your last year as bulls head coach. And essentially Michael Jordan says, all right, Jerry Krause, you want to play that game? If Phil's gone, I'm gone. I don't want to play for any other coach besides Phil Jackson. I can't blame MJ there. Now, my thoughts are Jerry Krause wanted to be the front man of the Chicago Bulls, and he wanted more credit for building the team. And I'll say it at the end, too. Jerry Krause absolutely deserves credit for building the Chicago Bulls. He wasn't the guy that drafted Michael Jordan, but he's the guy that put all the pieces for Michael Jordan around uh, put all the pieces around Michael Jordan for them to win six championships in eight years. Um, you know, he added Scottie Pippen acquired Dennis Rodman and, and, and all that stuff. But Jerry Krause had a huge ego problem. I think they called it the small man issue. 
because Jerry Krause was a small man. Jordan, Pippen, all the players used to pick on him. Fairly, unfairly, it's up to the, the viewer. But it's, there's no doubt that Jerry Krause had an ego problem. And you can't have a huge ego with a team full of egos. I don't care what you say. Michael Jordan had an ego. Phil Jackson had an ego. Scottie Pippen had an ego. And Dennis Rodman, as weird as he is, had an ego. That goes without saying. Jerry Krause does deserve some credit. But we all know they don't win six championships in eight years without Michael Jordan. So he's wrong. He was wrong in saying that players don't win championships, organizations do. That is complete bull crap. Your response. I agree with you for the most part. I do. And, and actually a majority of it. Because my argument was going to be that I think he does deserve more credit than he really got. I think he was overshadowed by the players and that he ultimately picked, mm-hmm. or not even picked, but acquired other than Michael Jordan. And yes, Michael Jordan was the focal point of the entire series, the entire team, the entire league even at that time. But he, what I was saying is he put it together. So the credit that he should have had from the beginning probably should have been there the entire time. That was, that was going to be my argument because I didn't, I thought you were going to say that, he doesn't deserve it. Like oh, the no. players are does. the players are, are the players like that's what made the championships, but mm-hmm. putting together a team that can do that six times is, yeah. is amazing for sure. So, but, but that was, same, that was what I was going to say. That right. was, but at the same time, when your focal point is Michael Jordan and he's there for, right. for all of his career, you could put anybody with Michael Jordan and they would probably maybe not win six championships in eight years, but they yeah. would probably still win a championship. Yeah. And I mean, you also have to see, you also have to see, and we'll obviously get to this too. When Michael Jordan left, the team wasn't that great. Well, they were good. They were good, but they weren't great. They weren't championship. They didn't win a championship. And even, and even when he came back, Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't, it wasn't the same, but to be able to, to build around a player like Michael Jordan it's hard to do in any sport. You see that in the NBA now. Mm-hmm. You see that in in NFL, NHL, MLB, all, every league. You teams that are okay have superstar players, but the ownership can't build around them or aren't able to build or around won't. them or just or won't. won't. Yeah. Really. So, I mean, I, I give I give Kraus a lot of credit for for putting that assembling that team, but he does, he does have problems with, mm-hmm. with media, with relationships. He has an ego. Right. He had an ego. Problem. Yeah. Yeah. So Scott. Uh, yeah. You speak about the media. What was it like episode seven or eight? He, I know we're jumping really far here, but um, we'll get to all of it. When Craig Sager asked him the backstabbing comment. Yeah. 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 And he like went off on Craig Sager, yeah. um, j- just Jerry Krause. You know he would be looked at so much better, and you know like the greatest GM of all time, if he just let the team play out. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. you know if he just you know let it be on its own. Like Scottie Pippen, yeah, probably would have left. But like MJ said it at the end too, he was signing one year deals the entire time. 
if they brought back Phil Jackson, they probably could have went for a seventh because, I mean, a lot of players were released after that or traded. I mean, Steve Kerr uh, left. Scott Burrell uh, was at the end of his contract. Dennis Rodman got released. Uh, Like, they got rid of, like, pretty much all the core guys, you know, after that 1998 season. Mm -hmm. But if Phil Jackson came back, you know, I think that you would have seen the Bulls, you know, making another run at a championship, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how long it would have last. I agree. Like sometimes you just need to move on after like a time, but I just don't see why you break up a championship team. Like the way he did, like you only do that kind of stuff. If you want, want and need attention. Right. And like, mm-hmm. I completely agree that he had like with MJ saying he had little man syndrome. If you're a GM, the best GMs are the ones that just, you know, stay out of the way, you know, build your team, do your job but don't try and you know make stories by yourself. Right. Build the team and let the players win and players and coaches win. Mm-hmm. And build relationships with those players, like good relationships obviously. Yeah. Because like it like it didn't help that all the players were making fun of Jerry Krause whether he was just walking in the room or saying something or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Like he had no respect and that's yeah. on the players too. Did yeah. Jerry Krause did Jerry Krause create problems within the team? Absolutely. But at the same time did he always deserve to be belittled and hated on? I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think I don't think he deserved all of that. But I mean, he definitely he deserved kinda, some of it. He did kind of put it on himself. Like, yes. Yes. You can't say and do the things you do and, you know, expect everyone to be buddy buddy with you and Right. You know, if MJ, you know, MJ had creative control over this documentary or it would never would have happened. You could tell his feelings towards Jerry Krause based on, you know, the beginning and just everything there was never really Jerry Krause, you know, put in a good light uh, until the end where I forget which player said it, but, you know, called him the greatest GM of all time. I think it was Pippen. Yeah, that's a, it was either him or Steve Kerr. It was Pippen, I think. Yeah, like, you know, that was pretty much the only good thing said about him the entire time. Pretty much. All right, so, again, as we go through all the episodes, Jerry Krause will come up here and there. But this episode one was really the focal point of what Jerry Krause was doing during that 1998 season. And the whole tension goes even further you know, into the past than 1998. So we'll get to all that. So that episode one continues, you know, after all this Jerry Krause stuff, Michael Jordan's early years. Now, Michael Jordan is obviously heavily featured in this documentary. That goes without saying. Um, so at times, to me, it seemed like a Michael, more of a Michael Jordan documentary than a Bulls documentary. We'll talk about that, you know, afterwards, after we dissect everything. But this goes into the early years of Michael Jordan his UNC days, you know, he was an instant star playing under Dean Smith at Carolina. Get to the draft, which is interesting, too, because he wasn't, pit, he wasn't picked first overall in 84. He was picked third. Hakeem Olajuwon, I get. You know, the Rockets picked him at the time of, you know, in the time in 84, you needed a big man to succeed in the NBA. Totally get it. But for the Portland Trailblazers to pick Sam Bowie over Michael Jordan, based off the fact that they had Clyde Drexler already, could we just imagine for a second what the Trailblazers would have been if they had Drexler and Jordan? Yeah. Can we just imagine? Like, the Trailblazers might be the Bulls if that happens. Maybe even better. I mean, that's crazy to even think about. But Jordan ultimately goes to the Bulls third overall in 84, single-handedly brings the competitive nature to the Chicago Bulls. That he, was, that he was known for in Carolina and that he ultimately built up, and that's his mentality in his career. 
single-handedly changed the Bulls to a winning culture, even when he got there in 1984. You know, beforehand, the, the Bulls were known, funny enough, as the traveling cocaine circus because all the drugs and stuff going on, apparently, like, apparently in that time in Chicago, drugs were a huge thing. But Michael Jordan wouldn't have any of that. He tells the story about the hotel room and all his teammates are there. You know, you got the drugs over here, you got the girls over here, and Michael Jordan didn't want any of that as a young rookie. But he went into practice each and every day, and he challenged, He found a leader on that team who probably was either Dave Corzine or Orlando Woolrich, whoever, whoever it was. And he challenged that guy, not with, you know, not with his voice because he didn't have a voice. Like he said, he didn't have a voice yet being a rookie, but he said he needed to challenge being a leader by example. And from there on in, you know, that was basically the whole thing of episode one, Jordan coming into the Bulls from college. We got a little, you know, childhood backstory, but I want to focus more on the basketball aspect of this. But Jordan comes into the Bulls, and right away, you could tell, Reinsdorf said it. Oh, and the GM at the time was – it wasn't it wasn't Jerry Krause. It was Rod Thorne who drafted Michael Jordan. I think Reinsdorf said to Rod Thorne, congratulations, you didn't screw up this draft. This guy is great. And the Bulls – People in the Bulls didn't know how good Michael Jordan was going to be. Nobody did. So that's basically all for episode one. We move on to episode two, and we fo- and the big focus is Scottie Pippen. Now, Scottie Pippen is one of the most underrated, undervalued, underpaid athletes, not even basketball player, athletes of all time. When I saw that Scottie Pippen, and Scott, you had the same reaction because we talked about this when it happened, when we saw it. When we saw that Scottie Pippen was the sixth highest paid player on the Bulls and the 122nd highest paid player in the league, you got to be kidding. That means like guys on the bench are making more than Scottie Pippen does. <laughs> you, like, I was shocked to see that, especially because at the time, Scottie Pippen is probably a top 10 player in the league at that point. You know, he, led, he was second in most offensive categories, you know, besides Michael Jordan. He was second in scoring, second in, uh, in, second in most offensive categories, except for assists, where he was number one on the team. Yeah. And we all, go ahead, Scott. Yeah. You hear you, uh, MJ said it in the episode, whenever they speak Michael Jordan, they should speak Scottie Pippen. Yeah, the Bulls never that, won without Scottie. Yeah, and, you know – my, MJ said that Scottie Pippen was his best teammate of all time, the, like the best one-two punch in the league. I mean, obviously you have the best player of all time. And then, you know, a guy who just understood his role and played it to perfection. He didn't care, you know, if he didn't score. He was the facilitator. He even said it, you know, once MJ left, it was hard for him to, you know, become the scorer of the team because that's not who he was. He was the guy who, you know, facilitated the triangle which I know you know you love <laughs> we'll get to the triangle um it was just you know he's the guy that you know let MJ be him and it, it was unbelievable that you know he was that underpaid and you know he he explained his reasoning for signing that seven-year 18 million dollar contract you know right you don't know what's going to be you know there in in a couple years or something like that like a he, lot wanted, of that he wanted to have stability 
Yeah, like that happens yeah, a lot he, in today's world. Like it's on Jerry Reinsdorf for telling him, "Oh, we're not renegotiating no matter what." Like yeah, that's on that's, that's the, totally on him. Yeah, that's, that's the, the problem. problem there. I don't blame Scottie Pippen for signing that deal because you know no. where he came from, a very small, you know, town in Arkansas. Uh, went to Central Arkansas. I believe it's like an NAIA school. Yes, I'm like um, that. You know, he never had anything like this probably growing up or definitely never had anything like this growing up. Mm-hmm. You know, so you take advantage of what you have. And, you know, if Jerry Reinsdorf was, you know, between Kraus and Reinsdorf, uh, you know, they are, they are the ones that made the mistake in – you know, the handling of Scottie Pippen, the reason probably why he was not a bull for life. Right. Joe, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. And I, I probably could even add underappreciated on oh, yes. that list that you listed because, because he really was. Like, he, was, he just was in the shadow of MJ the entire time. But well, here's the thing, the though. He didn't, he didn't mind that, though. He totally accepted that second fiddle no. role. Yeah, and the thing is, he was he was again other than MJ the most important player on that team because when yeah. he took that leave of absence MJ even knew it he was like what no like this is bad mm-hmm. like yeah and the team and the team suffered the mm-hmm. team suffered until he came back yep absolutely um so Scott you mentioned it before like come contract time you know Scott didn't want to gamble on himself and you can't blame him for that but he also kind of kind of screwed himself there because he kind of knew and again, Jerry Reinsdorf told him, and the same thing he told Michael Jordan when he signed his first contract, you don't need to sign this contract right now. So I'll kind of stick up for Jerry Reinsdorf in that point, saying you shouldn't sign this contract right now. You can make a lot more money later. But again, I totally get Scottie Pippen's point on why he signed it when he did. But he kind of undervalued himself, so I kind of think it's on both Reinsdorf and the Bulls and Scottie Pippen for that matter. I don't want to completely blame one side or the other, I, f- I kind of feel like it could have been handled differently, but I still totally agree. Scottie Pippen, very underpaid, underrated, and all that other stuff that we just said. Again, it's not fair that Reinsdorf didn't, like, once – I think he said it, like, once you come to me for a contract, don't come back for another one kind of th- kind of deal, I think. So, you know, don't even bother doing that. So then we go back to 97. Scottie injures, injures his ankle. And instead of being, you know, being – he could have gotten surgery. Before the season started, he plays chess. He waits for the 98 season to get closer, and then he gets surgery then to send a message to Jerry Reinsdorf and Jerry Krause saying, I'm not happy with my situation. Now, question for both of you, the teammates on the Bulls at that time answered how they did about how Scotty handled the situation. How do you guys feel Scotty Pippen handled that situation? Was it right? Was it wrong? What do you think? I mean, I can see why he did it. I mean, I think this is just the beginning of, you know, cho- choices that Scottie Pippen made that are in question through this whole series. You know, you'll see it later on in the in the 10 episodes. I mean, I'm never for a guy, you know, you know, holding – like, I don't know. I think your play should determine what contract you get. You need to play to earn your money. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think – I can see why he did it. But I'm always on the side that, you know, you should play and prove that, like, you're worth, like, you're, you're worth what you want to get paid. And even MJ said that Scotty was wrong uh, in that scenario. And yeah, so he, he was, was trying to, selfish. He was trying to force, yeah. the, force the management 
to change his contract, and everyone knew that that wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. So I understand you're trying to stick it to him, but it's not going to accomplish anything, and it's just going to hurt your teammates and mm-hmm. you know hurt the chemistry of the team. And that's what did end up happening to the Bulls. I think they they started they got off, seven that year. Yeah, they got off to a very bad start in '98. So the team did suffer because of it. Joe, what do you? How do you think Pippen handled the situation at the time? Yeah, I I agree with you guys. I think it was I think it was a little selfish. Um, I again I understand where he was coming from. I think that he should have been much higher paid than what he was. Yeah. But again, like you guys said, like Scott just said, um, you have to pay or you have to play to earn your really money. earn that earn that right for that money and. If you already kind of know that you're not going back, another team is going most likely going to pay you that kind of money, mm-hmm. especially if you if you have the name Scotty Pippen. Pretty much. So then, that's the first third of the episode. And then the second third is we flash back to 1985, year number two for Michael Jordan, coming off his Rookie of the Year season. And what do you know? It Jordan breaks his foot versus the Warriors, and he misses 64 games. Now, you'd expect nowadays, okay, you know, you do your rehab, do you do whatever you got to do. Not with Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan gets the permission to go from the Bulls to go back to UNC, and he secretly, progressively plays one-on-one, 2v2, until he gets to five-on-five. He came back to the Bulls, and I believe they noticed that his, one of his calf muscles were bigger than the other, so they kind of figured out that he was doing something he wasn't supposed to. Bulls were not happy that that happened and he was doing that training without their supervision. The Bulls didn't want him to play. Jordan said something to the fact of, you know, the 10% of, you know, re-injury and the whole poison pill thing that Jerry Reinsdorf said, how bad is the effing headache? That was hilarious. Love that part. (laughs) Um, Bulls didn't want him to play. Jordan obviously wanted to play. The thing that bothered him the most, and this is where I think the rift between Jordan and Bulls management really started, was that they didn't want him to play because they were tanking for ping pong balls and not worrying about the playoffs. Jordan made a pact when he got to the Bulls the year before that they will make the playoffs every single year that he's here. For the most part, he did that. So I got to commend him for that. But they come to an agreement. They put a seven-minute-per-half restriction on him. Now, that seems like nothing. Absolutely nothing. So this happens, blah, blah, blah. Jordan's not happy. If the head coach at the time, Stan Albeck, if he puts him over even one second, he's gone, fired, you're kaput, says Jerry Krause and Jerry Reinsdorf. So then they start making a playoff push here in 85. Jordan's playing his 14 minutes a game. The Bulls are turning here. In a game against Indiana, Jordan, you know, I think they play, I think Albach played them all 14 minutes really early. So then Jordan gets taken out. And what do you know it? John Paxton hits the game winning shot. Bulls go to the playoffs with 30 wins. <laughs> that is unthinkable. Yeah. Couldn't even believe it. The Eastern Conference was horrible. 30, 30 and 52 that year. Bulls sneak into the playoffs. They play the, I believe that they played the, um, Boston, Boston Celtics, Jordan. This is where I think Michael Jordan really started to become on the map. Round one, it was the 86 round one versus Boston. Game one, he scores 49. And then before game two, you know, after the game one loss, he plays golf with, I believe it was 
Um, oh, it was um, wasn't Kevin McHale. It was no. Danny Ainge. Yep, it was Danny Ainge. Played golf with Danny Ainge, and he said, "Watch what I'm gonna do to your boy DJ tomorrow." And Jordan goes for a then time record sixty three points, <laughs> and they lose. You got to be kidding me, Chicago. When I saw game one, 49 points, game two, 63, and you're still losing, granted, the Boston Celtics at that time, one of the best teams ever. But this is when Michael Jordan came on the map and really started to open the eyes of NBA fans. And Larry Bird's quote, I laugh every time. That wasn't Michael Jordan. That was God disguised as Michael (laughs) Jordan. And that just tells you what kind of respect Michael Jordan had only in his second year in the league. If you're a rookie in year two, you're not getting that respect in 2020 right away. But when you're putting up 63 points against Larry Bird, Parrish, McHale, Danny Ainge in the playoffs as an eight seed, that's respect. Um, and then this kind of – this is kind of like a theme throughout the whole series is that this caught like these two games right here caused to start the changing of the guard between – the Magic and Bird era, and then what would be the Air Jordan era in the 90s. So comments on any of that, guys? Like the, the greatness of Jordan against Boston, the 30-win team, the ping-pong balls, anything? I mean, the most memorable part of that, you know, the ending of the episode was how pissed, uh, how pissed Jordan was that they, you know, were tanking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he didn't want to miss the playoffs because, you know, he believed, like, that that was going to have such a big, you know, it was just going to have like a big effect on his legacy and he never wanted to miss the playoffs. And, you know, um, who was the coach then? It was uh, Stan Albeck. No, I thought it was, um, was it Stan Albeck or was it the... um, No, it was because that was the same season he had minutes restrictions. Oh, yeah, I do remember that because now they Mm -hmm. said that if they played him like a second over his minute restrictions, Stan Albeck was going to get fired. Right. Um. Yeah, I, I mean, it just shows how competitive Michael Jordan is that, you know, he, you know, took it upon himself, you know, probably very risky to do the to do the rehab that he decided to do with playing at North Carolina and, you know, playing five on five before he was, you know, cleared it all. But um, it just shows his competitive nature, how he didn't, you know, there's no, like, even thought of tanking in his head. That's probably why Charlotte has never done it when he's owned the team. Right. Um, you know, tanking just isn't in his blood. And, you know, that just shows the kind of competitor Michael Jordan is. Yeah. I, I, I like the whole part where like in the playoffs when he was, he was just going off with uh, against Boston, how it seemed like the entire team just was three levels, four levels behind what he was capable of do to do in his second year. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that he got, he did get so much respect from big name players at the time, like bird and magic right. and, and, and basically the whole Boston team. And, and as we get through the rest of the, the series, we see that Boston and the bulls and Michael Jordan have multiple I believe it was multiple appearances in the playoffs, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and each time it just seems like Boston was even more impressed by what Michael Jordan was able to do and 
progress into. And it's, it's just cool to see from their view, mm-hmm. looking out, uh, looking into a different team and a, into a player that's not even on, like in their organization. So then at the end of episode two, we flash back to the Scottie Pippen issue. Then this is the part where Jerry Krause becomes more involved and starts to entertain the fact of trading Scottie Pippen. Scottie, obviously, being a professional, you have to think of it as a business. But Scottie admitted that he took offense to Jerry Krause entertaining the fact of trading him. After that, here comes the drama of 98. Pippen demands a trade and said he would never play for the Chicago Bulls again. Now, I kind of think Pippen screwed himself a little here with the con- with the contract situation and whatnot, but I totally understand why he signed it. But, again, the Bulls should have been, and Jerry Reinsdorf should have been willing to renegotiate because he was a top-five player at the time. Um, I, still, I still do think that Pippen and the injury, he I think he really screwed up the team at that point. I think they could have gotten off to such a better start. But, you know, the drama is left in episode two when Pippen says he'll never play for the Bulls again and ensues the drama and all that good stuff. So then we move to episode three, unless you guys have any more comments on that. Episode three. This one, I'll, you know, the trailers were coming up to this one. I was like, I'm about, we're all about to see a side of Dennis Rodman that we're going to love. So we begin with that. And, you know, with the Pippen injury in 98, Dennis Rodman was the guy that had to step up and be that number two guy for Michael Jordan. It was hard for him to kind of accept at first because there was no question in this that Dennis Rodman had a lack of motivation. That just goes without saying. But I think it was a game. I'm not sure. I don't remember who they played, but Dennis was ejected from the game. And Michael Jordan was like ripping into him. So then Dennis goes to Michael Jordan's hotel room and doesn't say I'm sorry, but in his way says I'm sorry if you guys know what I mean. So then Dennis straightened out, and he starts playing and being a number two guy for Jordan. The way that he facilitated and how he trained to be a great rebounder just takes you a little bit into the mind of Dennis Rodman to, like, react to the angles and study players and how they miss the ball. Like, oh, Larry Bird misses. It'll spin off the rim here and end up like this. That's crazy. Yeah. dedication to re- to just rebounding. And we think rebounding is a little part of the game, but Dennis Rodman makes it seem huge. And it's really cool how he just gave us that little bit of insight and in how he trained, like, oh, take a bad shot and I'll, you know, I'll react to it like that. That shows you that Dennis Rodman had a lot of motivation when it came to doing what he did best. So, and again, he was also a facilitator of tough defense. You know, being that thorn in the side of whoever he played, whether he was in Detroit or with Chicago, he was a thorn in the side of everybody that he played against. So then another flashback, we head to 1986. Doug Collins takes over as head coach of the Chicago Bulls. He was brought in in 1986. That's what I was talking about, not Brent Brown. Sorry. Yeah, Doug Collins. No, you're good. Um, (laughs) Real players coach. And, of course, Michael Jordan loved him because Michael had the most individual success under Doug Collins. Won an MVP, Defensive Player of the Year, who people forget about all the time that Michael Jordan won Defensive Player of the Year. A slam dunk champion and led the team in all major scoring categories. They go to the 1989 playoffs, fast forward a couple years, against the Cleveland Cavaliers. Of course, MJ shot over Craig Elo to win the series. Um, and that really starts to bring the Bulls to a winning sort of mentality. They would go on to play the Knicks in the conference semifinals and beat them. 
And then the first series, Eastern Conference Finals, 1989, against the bad boy Detroit Pistons. I hate this team. Hate them. But they imply the Jordan rules, which would become a book by a later Chicago Bulls um, beat writer or newspaper um, columnist. And the Jordan rules were simple. Keep him on the ground and beat him up every time he goes to the rim. This kind of crap would never happen today. And I really wish it would because the NBA right now is as soft as it's ever been. We need 90s basketball back. Late 80s, early 90s basketball back in the NBA. So comments on the Dennis Rodman stuff or the um, the early success under Doug Collins for Michael Jordan in particular or the beginning of the rivalry with the Detroit Pistons? I mean – Rodman is just like a, a dude who's yeah, out of his mind. <laughs> like, yeah, he's a very good basketball player, but that guy is like on a completely different planet from a lot of people. But, you know, as weird as his character may be, may be or may be looked at by people, you can't deny what he did on a basketball court. Um, mm-hmm. There are nine – hold on, let me see if I can find it quick – uh, there are nine instances in which a player won the rebounding crown by at least four per game, and Dennis Rodman is responsible for four of them. Um, he literally just is that guy who does things that people don't want to do. And, yeah, that like his attitude on the court was, you know, how basketball was played back then. It was a lot more physical. You know, guys, you know, you were allowed to push people around. There were mm-hmm. – there weren't any like ticky taka fouls, no, you know, like, you know, hand checks or that kind of stuff. Like if you fouled someone, you fouled them. Mm-hmm. Like they, they were on the ground and, you know, that's why the Pistons became the way that they were because, you know, they played hard and that's why, you know, people like Isaiah Thomas and, you know, why he was, wasn't on the dream team because, you know, people didn't like how he played and, you know, the character of the Pistons, no one liked them, mm-hmm. but you know, you'll never see that in the NBA today because, you know, you push someone and you get a technical and you get thrown out of the game. Yeah. But, you know, Dennis Rodman, just like we said, Scottie Pippen before, I think Dennis Rodman's even more underrated because, you know, he didn't score really. He did everything else that, you know, people, you know, didn't want to do. It's like those second thought uh, stats where, you know, they mean so much like assists and rebounds, but they don't Mm -hmm. get the love probably that they deserve. Yeah, he was like the the head head down, grinded out type player, which mm-hmm. which I liked. Um, but the whole Pistons thing, it it is interesting, and I I do wish I think I would watch uh, basketball now a lot more if if it was late eighties, early nineties type play style. Um, basically, it was if you're going to foul, make it count. Mm-hmm. Kind of t- kind of thing. Like don't don't slap him around a little bit and not cut him up. You know, mm-hmm. or or uh, make sure he stays on the ground type of plays. And that's what they really instilled, especially playing against the Bulls, because they knew they knew that Scottie Pippen and and Michael Jordan were hands down probably best two players in the NBA at that time. Mm-hmm. And, so, it was inter- and it was interesting, too, to see, you know, Dennis Rama was on those early uh, Detroit Pistons teams when they won back-to-back titles. Yeah, yeah. So Dennis Rama was beating up Michael Jordan and then joins him for a second three-peat. I think that's a fascinating 
facet yeah. of the story as well. So then we go back to 1998 after this um, the series against Detroit where they would lose 4-3 to three in the first series against them in 1989-1990. We go back to Dennis Rodman in 1998, and I really saw, like, we saw it. The media just bashed Dennis Rodman for being different and being him. You know, he was just being himself. You know, you want to criticize him for the weird outfits, the lip piercings, the nose piercings, the different colored hair. Who cares? Like, Dennis Rodman at the end was just doing his thing, and he showed up on the court and played basketball. You know, he could do whatever he wants. Screw it, whatever. And basically, that's what he did. You know, the Bulls acquire him in 1995, you know, meeting with Phil Jackson and Jerry Krause. You know, it wasn't a great first impression, I think Phil Jackson said. He didn't stand up and shake his hand and whatnot. And when he was asked if he wanted to be a Chicago Bull, Dennis Rodman goes, sure, I don't care. What's up? Like, uh, you know, I don't care. Like, let's just do it if we want to do it. Weird. <laughs> like, if somebody – Scott, if somebody asked you, you want to play for the Chicago Bulls and you just go, eh, sure, <laughs> whatever. Like, <laughs> you're not going to go play for that team now. Like, that, that no. doesn't work. Like, but Dennis Rodman can get away with that. And it's freaking hilarious. And Phil Jackson was already the perfect coach yes, to put him around yeah. because Phil Jackson literally, like, we might as well just hop to the end of the episode here because Dennis Rodman asked for a vacation. And MJ says, if you send this guy on a vacation, we're never going to see him. And if you send him to Vegas, we're definitely not going to see him. Right. So, yeah. But Phil Jackson was the kind of coach where he let, you know, I think he's probably the first, like, real players coach. He yeah. was. He's not like the players coach of today, probably, because he's still hard. He was still like hard on his players, like. Well, but know, he was coaches. hard when they needed to be. Yeah, yeah. Like he wasn't, you know, afraid to give them, you know, like you know, give it to them. But he mm-hmm. also was a players coach. You know, you hear about, you know, like days off they got before big games. Like he understood how to be a players coach, but also how to balance, you know, you know, ripping them when they needed to be ripped and. Yeah. Uh, he was literally the perfect guy to put around Dennis Rodman because who knows what kind of career Dennis Rodman would have had if he, you know, he had a different coach that didn't understand him and understood mm-hmm. how to get the best out of him. You know, maybe we never would have seen the Dennis Rodman of, you know, the Chicago Bulls, Dennis Rodman. Um, For sure. You know, he probably would have gone astray, you know, probably only would have lasted a couple of years in the NBA before, you know, you know, he did something dumb or, you know, decided that he didn't want to play basketball anymore and, you know, mm-hmm. went to Vegas all the time and that kind of stuff. So, but, but we also forget why Dennis Rodman needed the vacation. Scotty Pippen came back in 98 from the ankle injury. Mm-hmm. He was ready to go. Rodman was so getting used to being that number two guy to Michael Jordan. Now he's back to being the third fiddle and the guy that's forgotten about. And Michael Jordan said, you know, it was funny too. Jordan was like, Dennis hated being a model citizen <laughs> and he just wanted to do his own thing. So then he says, needs a vacation. You said what you said, Scott. And I bet you Michael Jordan at that time was looking at Phil Jackson. Like, are you freaking kid? Like, like you said it best, Scott, you're not going to see him in 48 hours. He ain't coming back. And you know what the stupidest thing was? I actually thought that he was going to come back in 48 hours. Come episode four. <laughs> I really thought Dennis Rodman was going to show up in 48 hours later. So then the credit, the credits roll and whatnot. Uh, Rodman takes off in a motorcycle. Episode three is over. Um, so we will take a quick break. When we come back. We'll do episode four, five, and six as we recap the 10 episode documentary ESPN special, The Last Dance. Don't go anywhere. 
You are listening to Tri-State Sports Beat. We'll be right back. All right, everybody. Welcome back to our last dance special here on the Tri-State Sports Beat. Nick, Joe, and Scott here. We made the quick decision that we are going to make this a two-part podcast episode. So we will finish out tonight doing episodes four and five, and then later on we'll release episodes six through ten. So let's continue on with this, with episode number four. We left episode three. Dennis Rodman goes to Vegas for 48 hours, and I stupidly thought that he was actually going to come back. And safe to say, the worm did not come back within 48 hours. Michael Jordan had to get Dennis Rodman out of bed while a naked Carmen Electra was also in his room, and on their way to practice, they went. You know what was interesting, too? When Dennis came back to practice, Phil Jackson was like, Dennis, you ready? Dennis was like, all right, let's go. And I want to, you know, get more into this Rodman-Phil Jackson relationship. It was so unique. Scott, you said it before the break. Phil understood that Dennis needed his space and needed to be him and do his thing. And in return, Dennis would be locked in when it was time to play. So I think that really just set the tone. And that is why Dennis Rodman is the Hall of Famer that he is. That's the reason why Phil Jackson was the one to induct Dennis Rodman into the Basketball Hall of Fame when he was inducted. So that relationship was so unique and so crucial to not only Rodman's career, but the Chicago Bulls as a franchise. And I'm telling you this right now, the Bulls don't have this third, this second three-peat without Dennis Rodman. I really don't think they do. It's hard to be that guy that does all the dirty work, play the defense, be the thorn in the side, get all these rebounds, get rebounding titles like you said, Scott. And it's hard to replace that and not win an NBA championship, not win three NBA championships without that. So Dennis Rodman, again, like Scottie Pippen, very underrated. So then – we, flat, we go back to 1989, 1990. The Bulls make a little bit of a change. Doug Collins is out, and an assistant, Phil Jackson, is now ascended to head coach. Starting his coaching career, Phil Jackson coached in Puerto Rico and Albany, New York. We saw a little bit of that. Jerry Krause found him, hired him as assistant under Doug Collins. Doug Collins even said it himself that he knew that Phil Jackson was ready to be the coach at one point, which he ultimately would be. And then we get... This man by the name of Tex Winter. And Tex Winter is the reason why I am sad all the time. <laughs> Tex Winter is the innovator of the triangle offense. <laughs> yeah. The reason why Frank Milikino was drafted. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um. There was a little bit of rift between the coaching staff, you know, Tex Winter and Doug Collins at the time. Collins wanted to do his own thing, run the offense through Michael Jordan and only Michael Jordan. So Jerry Krause made the decision. Collins out. Phil Jackson promoted. And Collins' philosophy was a lot different. Like I said, he was very Michael Jordan-oriented. Get the ball in Jordan's hands, everyone out of the way. Phil Jackson, on the other hand, very team-oriented philosophy, along with Tex Winter, who innovated this triangle offense, and Phil Jackson learned it himself. And, of course, Michael Jordan, being Michael Jordan, did not love this move because, as he said, they're trying to take the ball out of my hands. So, of course, if you're an all-star and you're averaging close to 40 freaking points a game, you're going to want the ball in your hand. But then Michael starts to buy in. 
They match up with the Pistons in the 1990 Eastern Conference Finals. They lose again, and they struggle to get over this hump. They finish with a record in 1989-1990, 55-27 in Phil's first year. They beat the Bucks 3-1 in round one, beat the Sixers 4-1 in round two, and then would get beaten by the bad boy Pistons again, who then would go on to win their second consecutive NBA title. So then we head to 1990-91, and the Bulls had this mentality of weight training and let's get bigger and beat the Pistons back. And, you know, if they throw a punch, let's throw a harder punch. So they trained as a team. They got heavier, building muscle. And, of course, especially the front runner for this was Michael Jordan. And along with that, Jordan was heavily bothered by being classified as a great player that couldn't win a championship. You know, being compared to Larry, Larry Bird, and Mike and Magic Johnson, you know, he was the top three at the time, but there was always that chip that Jordan could not win one. And it's hard to think, you know, we didn't watch Jordan then. It's really hard to think of Jordan being a great player not winning a championship now before we even watched this, you know, crazy. But Jordan was bothered by that. He starts to hold – this is where Jordan starts to become the leader that he was really known to be. Jordan holds his teammates to a higher standard and brings that competitive fire to everybody. And then, finally, in 1991, the Bulls finally dethroned the Detroit Pistons in, I believe it was – it was a clean sweep. 4 nothing of the Pistons. And this is one of the many reasons why I despise. Again, I didn't watch this team. It was not even a thought yet. But I cannot stand Isaiah Thomas and Bill Lambeer. Because, of course, it was Bill Lambeer's idea to say, hey, they shook our hands the previous three years. We're not going to shake their hands. That really shows the true colors of Isaiah Thomas, Bill Lambeer, and just the Detroit Pistons at that time. It's like zero respect. And Horace Grant said it best. They're straight up bitches. <laughs> they were. They were. Sore losers. You won back-to-back titles, and now you get swept by the new and upcoming team that's going to reign over the next freaking, you know, 15 or so years. You can't just shake their hand after Jordan was beaten by them three years in a row. You can't just, like, shake their hands. This is why I don't like Isaiah Thomas, of many other reasons, of course. And I don't like Bill Lambier. But Yeah, I think I think it's funny okay. how they like try to defend themselves being like, Oh, that's just how the times were. That's yeah. like everyone did it. Like no. That's that's called Isaiah Thomas talking out of his ass. I was like I don't think so. No, it's not. And you know what? I'm gonna say it right now, I don't care if anybody disagrees with me. Bill Lambier is the most overrated player on that team. I'm just gonna leave it at that. Don't like the freaking guy. So, the Bulls in their first ever NBA Finals face Magic and the Showtime Lakers in the 91 Finals. And Jordan and the Bulls showed up. They lost game one, but they never looked back. They won in five. Jordan gets his first ring, gets the monkey off his back. And that was the moment Michael Jordan took over as the best and was no longer in the shadow of Bird and Magic. So, thoughts on the Phil Jackson era and the 90-91 Bulls championship, the first championship team for the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan. I mean, um, I think, it was, what was it, episode four that 
when they lost to the Pistons the first time, they um, they MJ finally started working out in the off season or something like yeah. that. Yep. Um, that was in this episode. It showed that you know, I mean, I mean, one shouldn't they've been working out in the off season all along? But that's just my yeah. opinion. Um, but I think the thing was, I think at that time it definitely could have been a lot different. That yeah. weight training maybe wasn't that important. Yeah, that's true. Playing basketball, being a cardio-loaded sport. Joe, yeah. you could, uh, I mean, Joe's the athletic trainer in the building, so you could, you could attest to that, Joe, if you want. Yeah, yeah no, and I think they actually – they said something along the lines as – I think it was actually MJ's um, uh, strength training coach was – he said that having an athlete like a basketball player running up and down the court, it's hard to build muscle because you're always – using that energy for your endurance and your cardio really. So it's hard to hold, it's really hard to build muscle and keep that endurance up at the same time. But, but I mean, obviously the way that they did it, he, he did. And well, the whole team did get bigger, faster and, and stronger because of that reason that that's what drove MJ and that whole team to beat the Pistons and, it will really smack the Pistons mm-hmm. and ultimately them. And, and ultimately win uh, for the, uh, for his first and their first uh, championship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, along those lines too, you heard MJ say when he came back from baseball that he had a baseball body. Yeah. He yeah. needed to rework himself out to become a basketball player. So I guess, you know, in that day and age too, they definitely probably focus a lot more on, you know, conditioning cardio. the cardio you know being able to run up and down the floor instead of you know you know no one's going to be like zion in those days where you know you're freaking six eight Monster. and almost 300 pounds and mm-hmm. you're literally a tank but one other aspect of that too i think it was horace grant was complaining to the officials during one game yeah and yeah. mj yelled at him saying you know you can't let the you can't you know show the pissing that you're getting mad at the officials because mm-hmm. that just shows that what they're doing is working and also to add to that, Scott, I'm glad you mentioned that. I think it was the last game in the series. I think it was game four in that year where Rodman pushed Scottie Pippen underneath the basket and Pippen didn't react at all. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, one, yeah. once and then once the Pistons realized that, they were like, oh, shit, they're for real. We just lost this series. Mm-hmm. I, I remember that. And I thought that was actually this – was it that this episode or was it – the, no, it was this one. Yeah. It, okay, it was. Um, I was actually going to say, and I believe this was this episode as well, with the whole um, Phil Jackson era type thing and how he related to Rodman so well was because he basically was the Rodman of his era playing. Right, and right. He was, he, was, he was the big man. He was the physical guy. Uh, but his lifestyle outside of basketball was not so – uh, I guess you could use neighborly. He was yeah. he was the guy that was always out partying, doing non. He was doing freaking acid. not yet non professional <laughs> things. He was a hippie. <laughs> yeah. So Bill Jackson exactly, was a hippie. You exactly. see, you see the picture of him in overalls. It's hilarious. So, so as much as I hate so, Bill Jackson, so that, I think that is kind of what connected the two. Yeah, and 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 built that relationship where yeah, I'm going to respect you as long as you continue to respect me and they also like shared some 
uh, I really don't want to get this wrong because I don't want to be like, I don't want to offend anybody, but they were into like some kind of Native American type culture kind of thing. And they shared some kind of bond with yeah. that. I'm not really yeah, sure that, yeah. what, that, what that was. So that also helped the relationship as well. Yeah. So then after, after the Bulls win championship number one, we flash back to nine, we go back to 1998 and Jerry Krause again, opening his big mouth saying, you know, making his intentions more clear before they go and play Utah in the regular season. And that year in 98, the Bulls lost every single game to Utah, who, of course, they would meet in the NBA Finals that year. But Krause makes his intentions even more clear. Phil Jackson, this is his last year. Michael, If Michael Jordan wants to be back, we'll gladly have him back, but it's going to have to be for another head coach. Jordan responds, publicly refuses to play for another coach besides Phil. That's that, whatever. And again, they struggle to beat their eventual NBA Finals opponents, the Utah Jazz. Episode four ends there. Roll credits. We have to wait a whole minute before we see episode number five so then and i'm not gonna lie guys episode five kicked off i got a little emotional about it being a basketball fan and the whole the kobe memoriam thing you know was really cool starting off with the 98 all-star game at madison square garden and the whole eastern conference locker room especially michael jordan realizing that kobe was going to make this a one-on-one game and Jordan, I think, said something along the lines of, he's not going to wait for the game to come to him. He's just going to take it. And that was like, I think that was so powerful and just spoke to how even the greatest of all time thought of a 19-year-old Kobe Bryant and what he could be. And then the interview with Kobe was, it was almost really strange because then a couple months later, he's not here with us anymore. So then. Kobe, you know, I think he was actually getting a little irritated at the question that, you know, don't even compare me to Michael because what you get from me was from him. And, you know, I'm basically saying I modeled all of my game and I got everything from Michael Jordan. So, again, that tells you the impact that Michael Jordan had on Kobe. And, honestly, if you think about it, guys, Kobe is our Jordan. Like, you could say LeBron is the greatest in our generation – Kobe needs more respect. Put more respect on Kobe Bryant's name, please. The guy's won five NBA titles, only playing for one team. Kobe Bryant is the Michael Jordan of our generation, and I don't even think it's close. Got thoughts on that? Thoughts on the Kobe thing first. Yeah, I mean, I didn't I don't know if that came out before the episode aired that he was gonna be on it, but I didn't know. Like, I didn't really look into the episode before it aired. And then, mm-hmm. you know, they started showing the all-star game in MSG. And what was that? Kobe's, like, 19-year-old season. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, their matchup in, in the all-star game. I mean, right. I'm just glad that they got Kobe in it. And, like, yeah. David Stern, too, like, on the yeah, same of the same uh, kind of a- unfortunate aspect there. But, you know, I'm just glad that they got Kobe in it. And, you know, he was – you know, in probably, you know, the biggest basketball, you know, documentary maybe ever to be produced, you know, he's like, like you said, he's, you know, our MJ of our generation, probably, you know, just the way he conducted himself, just, you know, even just now, like he was still such like a big, like he didn't want to be in the spotlight, but you know, it's still like him 
you know, when you learn that he passed away or whatever, it's still like, you know, it, it hurt like more than like a normal like celebrity death, yeah. if you want to put it that way. Like, yeah, it, 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 he just had such a big impact on the game of basketball and especially our generation that you know, and and something that oh, like so many eyes were on. I'm just glad they got him in it. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I I, I like how they they did the the episode with. MJ really speaking volumes to Kobe and how he was like his little brother and and I and like you said too like the whole thing where Kobe was like I I, I don't care about the MJ Kobe comparison like mm-hmm. he, he did he learned everything from from Michael Jordan and basically mirrored exactly what he did with the Bulls for the Lakers Mm-hmm. Like he was, he was that guy in LA. Yeah. So forever will be that guy in LA. So, and forever that yeah, guy yeah, in basketball, absolutely. but that's my opinion. Obviously like the whole goat conversation is different for everybody, but Kobe Bryant, no doubt is our, is my MJ of our generation. You know, everybody else has their opinion on who the goat is. Honestly, like we'll talk about this in part two when we get there. And when we recap the, like, like when we, get our final thoughts on everything. I think Jordan's the GOAT, and it's not even close, but Kobe for Kobe Bryant not to even get a consideration for the second-best player ever is ridiculous to me. I love LeBron. Like, he's done great things on and off the court in basketball, but I just it's, that's just my opinion. I think Kobe – I think Jordan's one, Kobe's two, but the conversation will go on forever. Anyway, um, after the 98 All-Star Game, we flash back to 1984 and the beginning of the shoe deal and the Jordan brand. Who knew this would change fashion culture, let alone basketball, forever? So, and you know what the most shocking thing was? Michael Jordan didn't even want to go to Nike. Yeah. He, wa- he, wanted, he wanted Adidas. <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> Like, he didn't even want to go to Nike. I just thought, you know, Jordan and Nike, great pairing, like, not even close. When I heard he wanted Adidas, I was like, what? This can't be. It's funny, it's, it's funny to think that, like, brands were, were so different back then. Because, yeah. it's like, like today, in today's society, like, Nike is huge. Nike is king. It was like, eh. Yeah, they it were attract. Like, they were more. They were known for being a track shoe. Yeah, at that, at that yeah. time, and I was like, just to hear the words out of Michael Jordan's mouth, I wanted Adidas. Just, oh, <laughs> weird. Anyway, um, yeah. So Jordan didn't want to meet with Nike, but thank, good, thank God, for Dolores and James Jordan, because yeah, his parents were like, no, you will meet with Nike and you'll hear what they have to say. Thank you, because who would have know who who knows what it would have been like if Michael Jordan signed with Adidas? It's it's such a weird concept. I can't even wrap my mind around yeah. it for some reason. It's weird, but Jordan ultimately signs with Nike, and you know, of course, the rest is history. But of course, the beginning of MJ as the brand, you know, deals with McDonald's, Gatorade, Wilson, and all that good stuff. 
And the Jordan brand also, you know, became more than just basketball. Became and it found its way in urban culture. And you know what is another weird thing to see? Michael Jordan and Spike Lee in a commercial together. And then I'm not gonna say that made me mad, but like it's weird because Spike Lee, Nick fan, Michael Jordan, who eventually would beat the crap out of the Knicks in the next couple of years, like a little conflict there, but it was still cool to see and what the Jordan brand has become now in 2020. It's as big as it's ever going to be. So then from the shoe deal, and I'm glad they actually put a little bit in there. I think that's a real important thing in Michael Jordan's career. Obviously he's a billionaire because of it, not just because of his basketball, but of course, Jordan. It really solidified. Yeah. It really solidified him as air Jordan. Mm -hmm. For sure. And I thought it was so, cool too that he wore his original ones in his mm-hmm. last game in MSG. Yeah. yeah, and that's what I'm that's what we're gonna get to right now. You know, back to ninety eight, he wears his Air Jordan ones, last game at MSG, and of course against the Knicks, drops forty two points and is like with his foot soaked in his feet, soaked in blood. Only Michael Jordan could scuff up his feet that bad and score forty two points against the Knicks. Actually, you know what? I could probably yeah, do no, it, honestly. The Knicks are horrible. No big deal. Right, no big deal. Right, not a problem. <laughs> So then, you know, they had to include him beating up the Knicks in 98 with Air Jordan 1s. I thought it was kind of cool. You know, being a Knicks fan, I should hate Michael Jordan, but I'm sad. To, I'm happy to say that I don't. Flat, we go back to the 92 NBA Finals. You know, the Bulls have a 67-15 and 15 record in 1992 regular season. They uh, meet the Trailblazers in the Finals. Jordan against Clyde is the storyline, of course. And, of course, Michael Jordan, this is a common theme in this whole documentary. Michael Jordan takes offense to being compared to Clyde Drexler. Uh, that's not a horrible comparison at that time, when Michael Jordan's only four years in his NBA career, just coming off an NBA championship. It's not a bad comparison, Mike. Clyde's a good, <laughs> Clyde's a good player. But eh, to be honest with you, the Trailblazers just didn't stand a chance. Game one, Michael scores 35 in the first half, score, uh, sinks five three-pointers, and that's what's known as the shrug game. So the Bulls, again, would go on. You know, Michael Jordan would go on and embarrass Clyde Drexler for the rest of the series. They'd beat the Trailblazers in six. And they went back-to-back titles. So then the Bulls, you know, back-to-back championships. They're on, you know, they're on their high horse, of course. And then 1992 Olympics and the Dream Team. This was the first time that NBA players were allowed to play and, you know, save U.S. basketball as it would end up being. And then, of course, Isaiah Thomas gets mentioned again. I thought I was done hearing about Isaiah Thomas for the rest of this freaking series. But people thought that Michael Jordan was the reason why Isaiah Thomas was not selected for the USA Dream Team, and guys didn't want to play with him. That's true. But Michael also said something about the team chemistry and whatnot. I I believe the Pistons' head coach was the head coach of the Dream Team, Chuck Daly, I believe. And Isaiah was not selected. I believe it was Joe Dumars instead because he fit the defensive uh, mentality that the dream team was. And I be- the belief was Isaiah Thomas was just going to create problems within the U.S. basketball, you know, within the team. So, they, you know, they go on to Barcelona for the 92 Olympics. And the trash talking in practice was the coolest thing. You know, in a – crop of full of NBA all-stars in one team 
in a scrimmage. Magic Johnson starts talking crap to Michael Jordan. Oh, this is this is Chicago Stadium all over again. He's getting calls even in a scrimmage in practice. Yada yada yada. You know, and and Magic said they were down eight or something. And I think Magic said something about, oh, you better turn into Air Jordan. And that's all it took for Michael Jordan to take over a scrimmage <laughs> and end up beating Magic's team, I believe, by double digits or something. Magic was like, oh, we were up eight, and as soon as I blinked, we were down two. Like, again, in practice, that just shows the competitive nature of Michael Jordan. It's unbelievable that he will just win at any level, whether it's a scrimmage, backyard, who cares? And then Tony Kukoc comes into the, into the story – because Jerry Krause drafts Tony Kukoc in 1990 and kind of puts him as a forward priority over Scottie Pippen's contract situation in 1992. And he was loving Tony Kukoc and, you know, how he was and whatnot. And, of course, again, this comes always in this documentary, Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen take offense to this. I totally understand it. I totally get it because – Michael, I think Michael said it to the point, you have to take care of your own first. Fair enough. You can't argue with that. Um, so they take their anger out for Jerry Krause on poor Tony Kukoc in the first game against Croatia. And Tony Kukoc has a bad game. The U.S. dominates them and whatnot, whatever. And making Jerry Krause look bad in the meantime. So then they meet, of course, in the gold medal game. Kukoc shows he can play a little bit. Of course, the U.S. is just too good. They win the gold medal, easy peasy, lemon squeezy. And then this part too, which is I don't again, which is something I don't think would be acceptable now in 2020. But if you do it the way that Michael Jordan did it, you can't argue with it. You still can't argue with it to this day. Michael Jordan had such a distaste for the Reebok logo after saying he wanted to be with Adidas instead of you know instead of Nike. But uh, I'll leave that there. Um, to cover up the Reebok logo with the American flag when presented the gold medal, uh, you know, the acceptance ceremony, A1, MJ. Got to give that to you. A1 move. So thoughts on the 92 finals against the Portland Trailblazers and Clyde Drexler and the 92 Dream Team? I mean, I'm just going to go right to the Dream Team. Another, you know – just a stick of Jerry Krause, the fact that they literally bullied Tony Kukoc because he, because Tony, because uh, Jerry Krause liked him. Mm-hmm. Like, again, just shows how much they disliked the guy and what he was doing, even before the whole last dance, you know, announcement. Mm-hmm. Um, also, like what I was talking about before, about how Isaiah Thomas didn't get on the dream team, you know, Many thought that he was the best point guard in the game, or at least one of you know the best point guards in the game. Mm-hmm. But the fact that MJ and Scottie Pippen didn't really like him, or you know, pretty much no one liked him in general, was the right. reason why he didn't get on the dream team. And you know, his uh, just I guess bad reputation around the league of you know being on that Pistons team. I mean, no one liked the Pistons because of the way they played. That dream team was just like. Literally what it was. It was a dream team. It was the first team that NBA players were allowed on the Olympic team uh, for basketball. And it was just like – it was Croatia was the best team, right? That was yeah. the Tony mm-hmm. Kukoc team. That was the team they beat in the gold medal game. 
And Tony Kukoc actually had a good game in that second meeting. Yeah. Because he, you know, wasn't as afraid, I guess, you know, seeing them, you know, the the second time. And I think I remember, you know, MJ saying that he gained a lot of respect for him because, you know, he didn't crawl up into a ball and, you know, sit on the bench and avoid the two of them. He came back at them and played basketball and proved that, you know, he's a good basketball player. And, uh, you know, maybe he has something, you know, like I said, it was unfair to him that Jerry Crest mm-hmm. put him in that situation. Yep. But, you know, kudos to him for showing up in that second meeting between the two and, you know, really putting on a good performance because, you know, he opened the eyes of MJ and Scottie Pippen. Yeah, I, I, I don't have much more to say from what Scott just said because it basically is it's like they targeted Kukoc just because of Kraus and it was it was unfair, but I did like how they, like, had Kukoc on and and uh, have him kind of explain that yeah it wasn't fair but so what was going on yeah kind of thing for sure so so then we kind of get a little bit of insight on what Michael Jordan and the Dream Team meant for basketball in Europe and across the world and it ends up being that MJ and the Dream Team were just huge for basketball's growth in Europe and maybe is a huge contributor to European players really getting a shot now in today's current NBA. So, so essentially, I have to thank Michael Jordan and the Dream Team for Frank Nielakina. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. And Porzingis. <laughs> and Porzingis. And Porzingis. Oh, thanks. Great. Awesome. Thanks, Phil. Great. Thanks. All right. So, anyway, we go back to 1998. And just a little bit of not, – not too much here, but – this just shows that the Chicago Bulls and Jordan and what would be their final year. And, you know, of course, before there was a lot of speculation that the Bulls were the hottest ticket in town. It was like celebrity row at Bulls games, like what you see now at the Garden at MSG at Staples in L.A. The Bulls both home and away games just to see Michael Jordan because it could be his final season. The fact that the Bulls could have completely sold out the Georgia Dome at the time is huge. It's like 60,000 plus. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable to see the outreach that Michael Jordan had. Just, you know, let's be honest. Most of the people at those games were there just to see Michael Jordan. They weren't there to see the Bulls. They were there to see Michael Jordan. But it really just showed the outreach that the Bulls had. And, what, and you know, at that time, they have already won five championships. And people knew that this was it. This was the last dance. And people just wanted to see it and have their shot at seeing Michael Jordan one last time. So that'll do it for part number one of Tri-State Sports Beat's reaction and review of the ESPN 10-part documentary, The Last Dance. Anything else to add, boys, before we call it a night? No, I think it was just like – like I said in the beginning of this, it was could not have been more perfect timing for ESPN in the execution of this. You know, this is probably, you know, most sought after, you know, maybe dynasty in, in the NBA or, you know, top five in sports. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just because, just because it was in 1998, you know, our generation, you know, didn't get to appreciate it. And, you know, I think it was 
you know, really big for people who love basketball, who only have been exposed to, you know, this kind of basketball to be exposed to this team, you know, and, and allow, even though this is mainly MJ's documentary, this was, this was MJ's thing. Right. It allowed people like Steve Kerr, like, like Scottie Pippen, like Dennis Rodman, even though he has a 30 for 30 on him already, you know, like, um, Scott Burrell, like guys like that, you know, to also get some recognition for what they did for that team as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was, you know, through the first five episodes, you know, every cliffhanger, it was just like, you didn't want to stop, especially after that, for those first two episodes, you just wanted to keep watching and let them all be released at the same time. So yeah. I'm kind of um, glad, I'm kind of glad they released it the way that they did leaving us wanting yeah. more and, I'm glad, glad they didn't do like one episode a night. That would have been yeah. Also, yeah, that's also another point. That's also another good point. So that'll do it for us. Thank you guys so much for listening to part one of our last dance coverage. Um, thank you guys for sticking around. We hope you all enjoyed it. If you don't already follow us on Twitter, follow us there at TSSB pod and on Instagram and Facebook as well for daily updates on all nine of our New York sports teams. Yes, we are a New York sports podcast. We're talking about Jordan and the bulls, but this is why we're here talking New York sports all the time. There's nothing much to talk about, but we're still here doing our thing. Um, look out for all bonus content, including this one, photo edits, audio, and video clips as well on all of our stuff. We've been slacking a little bit on that, but, I mean, hey, we're only human, right? Thank you guys so much for listening. Stay tuned for part number two right here on the Tri-State Sports Beat. Goodbye. Magazine, salt and pepper and heavy D up in the limousine. Hanging pictures on my wall. Every Saturday, rap attack, Mr. Magic Molly Mall. Hello, Brooklyn. I love your corners. I'm happy so. I love your corners. I'm happy so. I love your corners. I'm happy so. I love your corners. I'm happy so.